Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Just one note before you start, this conversation took place late last month when the North Korea summit was still in doubt and before the calamitous G7 meeting in Quebec. That said, Tom Donilon's observations are still very much on point. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Tom Donilon is quite simply one of the smartest people that I know. I recruited him to uh, help guide our debate preparation when Barack Obama was running for president. Uh, He ultimately became national security advisor in the Obama administration. Uh, He has a long and rich history in both diplomacy and politics. And I sat down with him recently at the University of Chicago, where he was visiting the Institute of Politics to talk about his career and where in the world we are today. Tom Donilon, my good friend, Good to see you again. We spent a lot of good times together, some bad times together. We'll get to some of that, but it's good to see you. David, nice to be here. Appreciate you doing this. So the great, I've said this before, uh, when, especially when I'm talking to friends, the great uh, joy of doing this is that you learn stuff that you never knew before. Um, I vaguely knew about your upbringing in, uh, in Providence. Um, but I got a richer understanding of it now in, in St. Michael's Parish mm-hmm. in Providence. Right. Talk a little bit about that, about uh, uh, growing up there and the influences that you had in your life. Yeah, I grew up, as you said, David, I grew up in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, um, and St. Michael's Parish at the time was one of the largest parishes, I think, in New England. Um, it was a very traditional place, uh, Actually, uh, more 1950s, I think, than 1960s, uh, if you will. Um, um, a product of the immigrant experience in New England. Uh, uh, where when did your family come over? My, my mother's family came over uh, in the 1920s mm-hmm. uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to New England, and my father's family came earlier uh, into Canada and then to, uh, into, into Vermont and down to Providence. Mm-hmm. But it was a very traditional upbringing there. And again, it was a, it was a kind of a, a social system a social support system that had been set up by the Catholic Church uh, to support immigrants as they came into the United States. So you were born in the Catholic hospital. I was born in St. Joseph Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. You went to the Catholic school, St. Michael's School. You uh, participated in sports and the CYO sports leagues. Um, and um, your social life was, uh, was, in the Catholic, was in the Catholic Church. And I went to a, a very large um, Catholic high school, St. LaSalle Academy, which was run by the Christian Brothers, which had 1,600 urban Catholic mm-hmm. uh, kids in it. So I was very much part of that experience. And it really was kind of a, it wasn't, I wasn't in the immigrant experience, but the social system, uh, the infrastructure there was very much in place uh, as, a, as a mechanism to support uh, Catholic immigrants into the United States. 
So in, uh, I could just uh, speak from the Chicago experience, these parishes, and even today, if you ask people like yeah. wh where they're from, they'll name their yeah. ward and their parish in many right. parts of the city. But um, in the Irish wards uh, and parishes, uh, there were two things that were uh, dominant presences. One was Catholicism and the other was politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, was it the same in Providence? Very much, and I think that um, you make a good point. Uh, if, uh, if, if you met someone uh, at a high school dance or something, and you asked them where they were from, they would say they were from X parish, mm -hmm. and you would basically have a pretty good demographic uh, uh, summary of uh, who they were and what they were about just by naming the parish. Yeah. So you're exactly, you're exactly right, and this is the way the city was divided up. You know, in this city... Um, because there was a, this, uh, you know, we had a large Italian community, a large Eastern European community, obviously large African-American uh, community, and Irish names on the ballot uh, always seemed to do well, in part because uh, people saw the Irish as kind of a uh, trusted institution and the, the, the parish priest and... Yeah. Uh, and and so on. I, traditionally in Chicago, uh, like people, if their if they if their last name was Miller but their middle name was Flanagan, they'd put their and they still do put their middle name on the ballot. Yeah, and of course that wasn't always the case in the United States. Uh, that became the case during the late nineteenth century, nineteenth century, and the twentieth century, where there was a lot of Irish participation in, in big city yeah. in big city politics. It was no different. Uh, in Providence, the Providence was a, was um, really divided uh, pretty evenly between um, um, uh, Irish uh, uh, sons and daughters of immigrants and Italian sons and daughters mm -hmm. daughters of immigrants, and a, and a large Portuguese population as well uh, in uh, in Rhode Island and Southeast New England uh, generally. Your point about uh, politics at being kind of at the center of activity and conversation uh, is exactly right. Um, my parents were very politically active. Uh, in, uh, in father Providence. was on the school board. My father was on the school board, and my mother was the, uh, a union organizer and was the president of the uh, Providence School Department Secretaries and Janitors Union, which was an AFSCME union in uh, uh, in, um, in Providence. So I have memories of of uh, really almost every dinner conversation having something to do with politics. And my parents were, were always going to a meeting. You know, there were there were a lot of meetings in, in <laughs> urban politics. You always had a meeting that night, you know, and uh, and they were both quite active. And again, my mother was active in the union and really until her death. Um, it, the, there was also this uh, melding of the two because uh, you, you came of age, you were a, a five-year-old boy when John F. Kennedy uh, got elected president, which must have had enormous meaning in, in, in the community there. No, very much so. And uh, obviously the Kennedy family was a, was a, um, uh, where, where you weren't I, that where far I, from Massachusetts. No, no. Uh, it was, was an iconic family in, uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island, by the way, is still obviously one of the most democratic states uh, in the country, which is the legacy of a number of these things. It's ironic, of course, that by 1980, I was managing managing a against convention Ted where Kennedy. I was leading the where I was leading the incumbent president's saying. defense and fight against uh, Senator Ted Kennedy at Madison Square How Garden. How did that sit with the family? Uh, mixed, you know, mm -hmm. I think it was mixed. Yeah, I, I want to get to that because yeah. I was at that convention. It was yeah. such an interesting uh, convention. One of your uh, friends uh, in uh, in growing up was uh, Tad Devine, yeah. who 
many people now recognize, Tad's been involved in democratic politics forever and really one of the most talented guys in democratic politics. He is uh, probably most remembered, at least by a younger generation, for his work with Bernie Sanders. Um, Were you guys uh, sort of aspiring politicians even back then? Well, we were friends uh, from grade school uh, at St. Michael's Grade School, Grammar School, Elementary School in Providence, Rhode Island. We went to high school together at LaSalle LaSalle, LaSalle Academy. We've been very close friends since the early early 1960s. we had deep interest in politics and talked about it all the time. Uh, Tad was much better known, though, in Rhode Island as a star basketball player, mm-hmm. where he was an all-state basketball player for LaSalle Academy uh, in, Providence, uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, which was a prominent athletic powerhouse because of the sheer size of the place uh, with 1,600 uh, with sixteen hundred boys. So Tad and I have been friends. and we, well, we The sharp elbows are probably useful in politics. Yeah, and we came in to, uh, and we worked together closely in the Carter campaign, where I asked Tad to come in uh, to be uh, part of the delegate team uh, in the Carter campaign in 1980, which I'll, was... Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that. But the other to... person, of course, who yeah. was deeply involved in national politics today is someone else who grew up on the same street with me, which is, uh, who is my brother, Michael. Yes, yeah. who, uh, uh, just by way of disclaimers, uh, now a partner in my old firm, mm-hmm. uh, AKPD Message and Media, but uh, really, he's, he's an extraordinary guy because he had success both as a pollster and then as a media consultant. That's yeah. pretty unusual for people to make that leap from one to the other. Yeah. I remember I met your brother in a campaign in the 80s, yeah. and he was the pollster for the yeah. campaign. Yeah, he was the president of uh, uh, Pat Cadell's polling firm for a while, which is a name from the past in, yes. in, in, democratic, in democratic politics. But, you know, David, we grew up in this uh, in this environment, as I described, uh, kind of this um, you know, a post-immigrant uh, environment where education was uh, the primary goal of our parents uh, to see that we that we uh, uh, succeeded in education, that we could exceed what they were able to accomplish, uh, and it was a and it was a time of tremendous social mobility in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even growing up in a in a place which was not very wealthy, obviously. Right. Uh, you know, Tad grew up in a housing project. Um, uh, it was not a very wealthy place, but we never, you never had any sense that, the, that your possibilities were limited. And that era of social mobility was a very important part, I think, of really one of the great periods in American history and one that we needed to, to focus back on now. You, you went to Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Um, and did you choose that because you wanted to be in Washington? Were you attracted to being in Washington? I wanted to be in Washington, and I thought I might become a priest. Um, uh, and uh, but was very attracted, obviously, by uh, by politics. And I, I found great mentors at Catholic University. The first class I had on Monday morning, 9 a.m., Politics 101, was taught by a young professor named Norm Ornstein, uh-huh. uh, who has uh, you know gone on, obviously, to become a quite yes. prominent political scientist yes. and, and uh, writer and commentator. But uh, And he and uh, another professor named Michael Robinson uh, were mentors of mine uh, almost from day one at Catholic University uh, on the political side. And one of your classmates there went on to some notoriety in politics as well, probably more than one, but the one I'm thinking yeah. of is Terry McAuliffe. Yeah, Terry McAuliffe and I were friends and roommates Went on Catholic to University. Uh, uh, become governor of Virginia, yeah. obviously very close to uh, uh, President Clinton and Hillary Clinton over the years. Uh, Terry's a pretty ebullient character. Yeah. Was he then? Yes. Uh, there, there, I, there's been no change in his level of energy, <laughs> right? You know, uh, and his love of people, 
uh, and his love of politics. Uh, and we were very lucky. We had great teachers like Norm Ornstein uh, who uh, kind of imbued in us uh, uh, kind of a love of politics. Norm actually also was responsible for my first foreign policy experience. Um, uh, in my senior year, I had, took a, an independent study course where I worked at the State Department uh, as an intern working on a, on, a, on, a, on a publication called The Foreign Relations of the United States. Uh, and if you spend a lot of time in libraries working on diplomatic history, you'd recognize these maroon volumes, which are uh, which is a what compilation. It's a comp. It's a it's a documentary history, kind of a document history, of uh, of American foreign policy. Uh, so it's a compilation of the key documents uh, that were uh, uh, important to each uh, to each era in foreign policy. So the cables, the memos, the memorandums of the files, right? Uh, and I uh, that was my first experience at the State Department, uh, where and it was an office I ended up overseeing many years later. You also uh, got an internship uh, subsequently at the White House. Well, I went to work at the White House. I did, I, did you go in as an intern? I and did. Then? No, I went in as an employee. Oh, I see. I started at the White House in, on on June twentieth of uh, nineteen seventy seven. Um, as an employee in the Carr administration, working in the Congressional Relations Office. How did you, uh, how did you land that job? I had uh, some professors, uh, Michael Robinson and Norm Ornstein, who uh, heard that uh, the Carr administration was looking for a young person to come in and work in the Congressional Relations Office, and I uh, was lucky enough to get that, uh, to get that job. So you're a young kid, probably t- uh, 21, 22. I was 22 years old. I was, I was uh, President Carter's youngest assistant. And what what kinds of chores did you get at first? Because I know by the end of those four mm-hmm. years, as you point out, you were running the delegate operation at the convention, trying to protect the president against this challenge from Ted Kennedy. How did you get from A to B? Yeah, the chores I had are the chores you would expect a 22-year-old to have in the White House, which is I answered, I answered mail from members of Congress uh, before the age of the personal computer. Uh, before the age of the cell phone, and, uh, where you would uh, take a uh, take a letter, type out a response, bring it to a correspondence pool. It would be typed up. You would proofread it, and he would send it back to the member of Congress. So I did that for a couple of years, and then in 1978, I was asked to take on uh, working on overseeing the 1978 midterm election effort by the White House, and then in 1979, I went over to the campaign uh, to do the delegate operation. I ended up running the delegate operation, which was. It was supposed to be a good learning experience for a young person. It turned out to be a much more complicated experience uh, with the Kennedy Challenge. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, More on that in a second. One thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, I read somewhere that um, that in the depths of, uh, of the challenges that President Carter faced, that uh, he uh, wanted to know that his cabinet was loyal to him, and he wanted some research done on which cabinet members had declared their support for him and which had not, and that somehow that research fell to you. Is that a, is that a true story? It's a kind of a true story. The, uh, kind of was, true is good it enough. A, it's a podcast. Right, what the hell? Right, you know, it was a long time ago. Yeah. No, but I, I was asked that the president was having a, a meeting at Camp David with the cabinet and wanted research done on what they what various cabinet officers had done, what their priorities had been, how they how responsive they had been to White House requests and priorities. Uh, and I I think ran into Hamilton Jordan, who was then the White House chief of staff for President Carter, and a, another really dear friend and mentor of mine. Uh, and I was asked to work that weekend uh, uh, in the files, uh, putting together these uh, the research uh, that the president wanted to have the conversation with the cabinet, and I did that. And it was really my first big project for. I think for he Hamilton ended up Bird. asking them all for their 
resignation. That was later. That was that was in the summer of 1979. Yeah. That was a whole different. Uh, that was a whole that was different another episode. Level of that was a very another. very famous episode at Camp David, where the president had prominent Americans from around the country come up and have this these conversations with him about where the country was, and it was it was culminated in, in what is the famous uh, what's what's known as the uh, Malays. Even though he never used the word never Malays. used the word Malays, but that was but it, all of this leads up to this race in 1980 yeah. because it was a serious. Challenge. I mean, Ted Kennedy, obviously uh, the legatee of this enormous uh, yeah. uh, family history, and um, you know, here in Chicago, uh, there was a little bit of um, drama. You may remember because Jane Byrne was the mayor of Chicago, had just gotten elected, upset the Democratic machine. She was an idiot. She was a little idiosyncratic in her political behavior. Had a fundraiser with President Carter here. 11,000 people, and she said if the convention were tonight, I'd cast my vote for for uh, Jimmy Carter. And two weeks later, she endorsed Ted Kennedy yeah. uh, for president. So, well, the convention wasn't that wasn't that night. Yeah. Oh, well, I remember I remember it well. You know, this this turned out because this is a long time ago for me, and well, kind of a different life. But um, I was. You know, 24, 25 years old, and running the delegate operation for the for incumbent president. Did Hamilton Jordan uh, ask Jordan, you to do that? He did. He hired mm-hmm. me on to do that, and I went over and, and went over and opened up the headquarters with this real estate agent for the reelection campaign in March of nineteen March of nineteen seventy nine. And of course, it was supposed to be uh, a good experience uh, mm-hmm. and something that a young, um, hungry political operative could uh, could take on. And it turned out to be, uh, you know, one of the great nomination battles in the modern history of the Democratic Party, where, yeah. where Senator Kennedy, going on into the summer of 1979, indicated that he was going to challenge the incumbent president. Yeah. And we and by October or so of 1979, he was well ahead of the incumbent president. He had a big a polling lead on President, uh, president Carter as we headed into the primaries and caucuses. Uh, and I was charged with the delegate, uh, with the delegate selection and then, the, and then the convention. But it really was one of the great and defining uh, political races in the modern history of the Democratic Party. It really was. It, it had resonance for a long time, David, as you know, about whether you were a Carter person or a Kennedy person. Did you, uh, did you given your background and your history, uh, did you have any reservations about it at all, or, or were you firmly? I was firmly. You know, he had become, uh, you know, president had become a, a uh, um, someone I deeply, I deeply admired, and I knew this, uh, and it turned out to be, I think, true. Is that uh, a, a uh, there was a uh, kind of a rule that the longer it took you to get the nomination, the less likely you were to become elected in the general election. Mm-hmm. And I could see the damage that was going to be done to the uh, to, and in to fact, the this presidency. race went beyond the primaries. It because did. Senator Kennedy's floor. forces went to the convention floor, tried to change in 1980 the convention rules yeah. and unbind delegates because there was a sense he had won a bunch of primaries late. A sense that he was he had momentum. Uh, One of the great convention floor fights was over unbinding the delegates, yes. right? You know, which is a floor fight that I that I led as a Do young you, young person. I don't know if you remember this, but I was a young reporter on the floor. Mm-hmm. Jane Byrne and a bunch of her folks from Chicago, mm-hmm. like her sanitation commissioner and Ed Verdoliak, her floor leader, and so they fanned out on the floor and basically tried to browbeat the. Carter delegates led by f- Jerry Costantino on the yes, other side. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. The, the the former uh, state treasurer, yeah. um, and it, uh, brawls ensued. 
Yeah, it was literally fistfights yeah. uh, in the Illinois delegation uh, over over this. It was one of the most intense fights again the Democrats have had uh, in its modern in modern history, and it had a lot of elements to it, David. It had challenging an incumbent president. But, uh, you know, President Carter was caught at the edge of a lot of trends in history, right? Uh, it really was kind of the moving away from the New Deal, the New Deal coalition, um, uh, but with a strong challenge to pull it to pull it back, right? He, in many ways, kind of foretold the rise of Bill Clinton in terms of his ideological and policy approach. But it was a very difficult kind of caught on a number of a number of vortexes, including uh, and uh, economic challenges, right? Real interest rates were 15 or 16 yeah. percent. And of course, we had uh, uh, dramatic foreign policy challenges with the hostages having been taken in Iran. The very difficult fight. And again, I think people define themselves for a long time after that fight as to whether they were a Carter person or a Kennedy person. And the the atmosphere on the floor of that convention, it really was an incredible experience for me uh, because you learned that inside an event like that, anything could happen, yeah. that you could see momentum change very quickly, right? You know, back and forth. It was really a tremendous experience for me. And we ultimately Kind of won. an extraordinary amount of responsibility for it. 24-year-old kid. Yeah, it was. It was a great. It was a great experience. It had, you know, it, it calls into question the judgment that people would hire <laughs> would hire a 24-year-old or want to run it, but it worked out okay. You went off to law school. I didn't. Um, uh, why did you decide to do that? Because it was the profession that I knew. I kind of knew most about growing up in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and the, during the Carter years, though, a number of things happened. Which one, I wanted to. I wanted to um, point out. I met another great mentor during the Carter administration, who was Warren Christopher, who was yes. the Deputy Secretary of State and ended up being my law partner and then Secretary of State when I was his chief of staff. And I met a tremendous number of terrific, uh, terrific people as I was a young person, lucky enough to do that during the Carter, during the Carter um, administration. But I went to law school at the University of Virginia, um, which is another institution that I, uh, that I love because, you know, that was what a... That's what an, uh, an Irish, young, young Irish Catholic person growing up in a place like Providence, Rhode Island, did if they wanted to get a graduate degree. You became a doctor, you became a lawyer. And this, of course, was a great dream. And, um, but you, you, you clearly kept your hands in politics. You got involved in Walter Mondale's campaign, who had been vice president under President Carter yeah. in 84, his ill-fated campaign against yeah. Ronald Reagan. Uh, and you were involved in the debate prep. I did. I worked that, on I started to do debate prep for the first time then. Well, two things. One, you know, I had a, a couple of specialties. Uh, one was convention management, so I managed the convention at Moscone Center in San Francisco uh, in 19, uh, 1984. But also I began to develop a sub-specialty uh, sub, uh, in debate preparation, working with, with, uh, with Vice President Mondale, uh, and then working with— How did that happen? I had worked on the campaign, and um, I had— um, you know, knew him and knew the people around him well, and I had uh, had a lot of political experience by that point, even though I was fairly young and was asked to take on a piece. But I didn't run debate preparation. I worked on the debate preparation. Mm-hmm. I ended up running it in 88 and in 92. And, of course, in um, in June of 2008, this guy named David Axelrod <laughs> came by my law office and asked me if I would— I, uh, I, I remember that conversation If I would run debate well. preparation for a, a senator named Barack Obama. It was one of the best uh, decisions <laughs> that, uh, that we made, but— um, uh, so you you did those debates. Those debate. Let's talk a little bit about debates. Those debates were famous because the first debate uh, Vice President Mandel did very well, and President Reagan did not. In fact, when we were preparing for the debates in 2012, when President Obama was running for re-election, 
ringing in my head was that first Reagan debate and other examples of presidents not doing very well in first debates yeah. uh, because they're not used to people being in their grill, you know, whereas the opponent generally is, has been in primaries and, and so on. Um, but the second debate, the second debate, uh, Reagan came back. He did. And with one really memorable debate line, right, yeah. the question after the first debate was, has he lost it? Has the old man lost it? Uh, and there was real there was real concern about whether Reagan, uh, you know, aged. And tragically, we now know maybe this was the beginnings of something. But um, you, uh, he he challenged uh, Mondale when he was asked not challenged. He joked when he was asked about whether he had lost some of his capacities yeah. and. Do you remember what he said? I do very, very well. I said he said I, I you know I won't hold my my uh, my um, opponent's youth and inexperience against him. <laughs> you know there is um, an element of theater to it, and that that Reagan moment was one of those uh, because with humor he dismissed what was a concern that people had, and that so he used the platform well in 1980 against. Uh, uh, President Carter, he came across as a kind of genial and unthreatening, uh, and uh, when people were concerned that maybe he was, maybe he was too hawkish, too extreme, he won the campaign in that debate. If you look at the data for uh, now, that debate was held a week before the election. Yeah, and right? it was the only debate. one debate, October twenty eighth, Cleveland, Ohio. The only debate, huge stakes. President Carr didn't believe that he could actually kind of, you know, didn't really believe that he could lose a debate against uh, against then uh, then Governor Reagan, and the and the and the you know a lot of the dynamics in the country were moving against President Carter. Uh, we talked about the hostage crisis, the economic situation, um, were kind of leaning leaning against him, but there was a real resistance to, to Governor Reagan for lots of different reasons, right? His background, whether he was qualified, right. questions about questions about his his outlook. Um, middle of the Cold War. Right. Um, and uh, he was able to push through this th- and kind of threshold of acceptability. Yeah. After that debate, people could imagine him as president. Yes. And he, and the, and the, the race and the broke gate, dramatically. And the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the flood just, the floodgates opened up. Uh, that yeah. example, by the way, is one reason why uh, uh, candidates are reluctant to schedule debates so close to the election because it's hard to recover. The next time around... Uh, Jim Baker was doing the negotiations uh, for Reagan, and we came in to do the negotiations. And the first thing he said is this, we will not debate early, any later than three weeks yeah. before an election because yeah. there was no recovery time. And of course, then, that's been kind of a standard negotiating uh, position going forward, kind of the Baker rule. There's a lot going on so, uh, in the world today, so I, 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 I need to advance the story mm-hmm. a little bit here. Um, but in the 90s, you, you made the transition uh, in, in a big way into foreign policy. As you mentioned, you became chief of staff for Warren Christopher, mm-hmm. who was Bill Clinton's first secretary of state. That must have been a, a crash learning uh, experience for you. It began, though, in the mid-1980s, uh, where when I got out of law school, um, I had lunch with Warren Christopher, who was the chairman of the law firm of Melody and Myers, where I ended up practicing law for many years. And he asked me what I was going to do. Uh, when I graduated from law school, I said I was going to set up a political consulting firm. He said, why do you want to do that? I said, because that's what I'm good at. I have a lot of experience. I think I could do very well at it. He said, well, I have another idea. Why don't you actually learn something, uh, <laughs> learn a skill, uh, become a lawyer. You, you can come to my law firm. Uh, and there's a way, I think, for you 
to participate in politics with the law firm as your base, do interesting things professionally, but come in and out of government, come in and out of public mm-hmm. service. That's what he had done. I have to ask you one thing about Christopher. Um, he, he's sort of immortalized in, in, in a very sort of narrow and probably unfair way because he was called upon by Vice President Al Gore in, in the year 2000 to run his yeah. recount operation in Florida. And uh, George Bush brought in Jim Baker. Now, Jim Baker is a fundamentally pol- political... I mean, he, he, he has great credits as a, uh, as a diplomat, as a Treasury Secretary, but also was one of the great and toughest political consultants, or not consultants, but operatives yeah. of our time. He'd run five presidential campaigns and so on. And there was, and there, there was a sense, and Jeff Tubin was here recently, wrote a book about it, that, you know, uh, that uh, Baker came uh, with a gun and, and uh, Warren Christopher was very refined and, uh, you know, brought a knife to a gunfight. Yeah, uh, 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 Warren Christopher was not fundamentally a political a political operative, and that was fundamentally um, a political it was a confrontation. political confrontation. I think that's right. He was a he was a kind of a mid century American type, modest, tough, um, but very focused kind of on principle. And he had been uh, he's a diplomat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a diplomat uh, searching for kind of common ground in in negotiations representing clients in, in, in the United States around the world. So it was a it was not a it was it, that was a political a political battle. He was fundamentally not really a, he's not a political operative. At the end of it, uh, Al Gore won uh, lost by I think five hundred twenty seven votes yeah. uh, is the, what history will record. How impactful was that election in terms of the history that we're even living today? I think if anyone. Um, kind of moves to the point that, well, we basically in the United States uh, conduct our policies between the 40-yard lines, and and maybe these elections don't make that much difference, and maybe an electing a president doesn't make that much difference, uh, who's president. That's wrong. Uh, and I think history has taught it's wrong. It's incredibly consequential uh, in uh, in America today. And that was an example of that. Um, you know, during the, There were uh, substantial events during the course of uh, George W. Bush's um, a presidency, including the Iraq War, the financial crisis, um, 9/11, and other uh, and other significant events, which took the country in a very different direction than I think it would have gone under, gone under Vice President Gore. How how uh, consequential? I mean, I have my own views on this. I've talked about it here and elsewhere. Was the Iraq War and the decision to go into Iraq uh, on American foreign policy uh, to this day? Well, it's, it, it was um, probably the most consequential decision that the United States had made in the national security area since, since World War II. Uh, um, in many ways, more consequential because it was more. It, the impact has been more more long lasting than Vietnam. Vietnam, obviously, we had many more casualties. Uh, you know, fifty six or fifty seven thousand Americans lost their lives in Vietnam, and four to five thousand lost their life and lives in the in the course of the wars uh, in Afghanistan and uh, and in Iraq but the impact on the United States and its place in the world was was very dramatic uh, and it's uh, we see it it's caused uh, it's been kind of the root of what's going on in the Middle East what's going on in the Middle East today it led to I think the rise of Iran as a as an important challenger uh, in the uh, in the Middle East um, and it was a it was also, David, I think another important point is that at the time that, the, that we were um, you know, quite focused on Iraq and the wars in the Middle East, other things were going on in the world that we should have been more focused on, including the rise of China and the dynamics in Asia. Um, 
you, in 2008, as you mentioned, um, you joined us. Uh, you'd worked with Vice President Biden. And I skipped over a little bit of your history because you served with him on the Senate Judiciary Committee in closely, the 80s. Yes, yeah. We should take one minute on that. You were there for the famous Bork hearings when President Reagan nominated Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. I and was. he was rejected uh, by, uh, by the Senate. Um, a lot of people look back at that as a kind of watershed moment that has cascaded into Merrick Garland not getting a hearing, end of the filibuster, and so on. Um, talk a little bit about the meaning of those times. You left before the Clarence Thomas. Yeah. I don't think you were there then. I was never formally on the staff. I was. I, I advised uh, uh, I Senator, Senator Biden mm-hmm. uh, and then Ch- Chairman Biden and mm-hmm. on a number of Supreme Court nominations. Um, and um, you know that was it was fought I think on the merits then, but it did it did bring in a um, an era where outside lobbying groups and all kinds of other forces kind of come into the nominations come into the nominations process. And for for uh, I, I presume that the end of that sentence is and maybe not for the best. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, I do think that 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 nomination was considered. I really do believe kind of on the. On the merits of the, of the nomination, but I but I also believe that the nominations process has become um, much too politicized. Uh, frankly, I think that my general view is that a president should be able to nominate the um, you know the uh, the uh, the people that he that he that he wants to nominate, and absent some absent some disqualifying uh, disqualifying. Um, Element right that they uh, that you should allow the president to have his nomination. Now the Supreme Court's different though, uh, and uh, and it's become Supreme Court itself has become so divided and in some ways politicized that it's become a very hard problem, David, uh, uh, for us to for us to address. If you were Democrats, uh, let's say theoretically Democrats took over the Senate, I think that's unlikely at this juncture. But if uh, if you were Chuck Schumer. And the president, and there was a vacancy on the Supreme Court uh, in the near term. Uh, would you uh, move on that nomination, or are we on this position now where the Merrick Garland rule is going to get extended, and uh, and the Senate's just not going to, or shouldn't? Move yeah, well, on this there. is kind of outside my area of expertise. I know, but you, well, it, it, it yeah. may be outside yeah. your yeah. area of but, comfort, but yeah. it's not no, outside right. your area of expertise. <laughs> right. I think that uh, I think that that the that the precedent that was set by 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 the Republican Senate on not on not bringing up Merrick Garland's nomination of the Supreme Court for over a year was a really bad precedent. Uh, no one could have been more qualified. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was that was accepted on both sides of the aisle. That's why they didn't want to put him on um, yeah, the floor right. for a vote. Yeah, you know, he would have been, you know, he, on the natural, I think he probably would have been a 90 to 10 uh, confirmation uh, for the Supreme Court. Uh, and it was a mistake, and it was a mistake from, from a lot of perspectives. It was, it was a mistake, I think, for the, for the country because we don't have his service uh, on, the, uh, on the Supreme Court. But the precedent is really uh, damaging for the reasons that you lay out, right, which is that, which is that you can imagine that uh, if Democrats were now in a similar position, they would also hold off on going forward with a, with a nomination. Let's move forward to your tenure in the Obama administration, first as Deputy National Security Advisor and then as National Security Advisor. Uh, you were there for five years. Um, the, uh, there were some really, obviously, consequential events, the wind-down on the war in Iraq. I just want to run through some questions yeah. that are asked, and then I want to talk about where we are today. Um, the decision to draw down the troops in Iraq and leave. 
uh, is one that's often cited by opponents of the Obama foreign policy as a reason that uh, that, that created a, a vacuum for ISIS and gave uh, uh, the Iraqi government more leeway to uh, crack down on 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 uh, Sunni and uh, so where do you uh, what what do you say? There's a couple that? of things about that. Number one, there was not a precipitous drawdown of troops in Iraq by the Obama administration, this but there took, were none left after 2000. But, but, but it took place. It took place over a period of three years. Um, it took place uh, essentially on the timetable that had been put together uh, and agreed to by President Bush 43's administration and the Iraqi and the Iraqi government. Um, by the time uh, that December of 2011 came around, there was not a lot of appetite among Iraqi politicians for the continuation of large presence of U.S. troops uh, in, uh, in Iraq. So presumably uh, if the government, ins- if, if the U.S. insisted that... Well, that's not clear. Uh, that, that's not clear. You know, in our military at that point um, was very much objected uh, to not having the kinds of immunities given to them by the Iraqi mm-hmm. parliament that they, uh, that, they, that they sought. And I also don't think at the end of the day that uh, you can assign the rise of ISIS to that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to that set of decisions. There were a lot of other dynamics going on uh, in Iraq, principally uh, the Maliki government had become sectarian mm-hmm. and authoritarian, and um, uh, you know, um, really kind of quite violent against their against their opposition. Mm-hmm. And you had uh, you had an uprising uh, that took uh, that took place. And you have to ask yourself, David, uh, if the United States had had five or ten thousand troops uh, in Baghdad, um, would it have made what what kind of difference would it have made? And I'm not sure. At the end of the day, given the overall dynamics that were underway, including the war in Syria, that were underway. Uh, in 2013 and 2014, whether or not uh, you wouldn't have had the rise of ISIS. Um, the other uh, issue that comes up is the reset. Yeah. Um, maybe an unfortunate symbol was the reset button. Yeah. That, but uh, I, yeah, I had Mike McFall here uh, recently, and uh, I remember very well uh, that a lot of business was transacted in those first two years with Russia when Putin was in the prime minister's spot, still a dominant figure, but. Medvedev, the president then, and Obama had a close working relationship, or a at least a cooperative relationship. It was very different. You know, this, this was a period where uh, where kind of the great power relations in the world were generally cooperative and constructive. Um, we were under no illusions what Putin's coming back would mean for this. But during the period that Medvedev was um, uh, leading Russia, the prime minister of Russia, uh, we did get a lot of things done. And we knew that that may be a limited time frame. Um, there was no there was no naivete about this. And during that time frame, of course, we were able to agree with the Russians on allowing lethal support for our effort in Afghanistan. Um, we worked through a number of economic and other uh, issues. We did a, a, an important arms control treaty, uh, the New Start, uh, the New Start Treaty. So there were uh, a number of achievements, uh, but it was a um, uh, but we knew at that point it was, it was likely to be a limited amount of time if Putin came back. Uh, we were under no illusions about that the, the, um, that the attitude of Russia could change um, with Putin coming back. And indeed, one of the principal trends in the world today is the reemergence of geo, geopolitical competition and conflict and, uh, and ideological uh, competition uh, and conflict. And I think you can date that. You can really date that to Putin's coming back into the presidency of, uh, of uh, uh, presidency of Russia in uh, the spring of 2012. The, you, were, you were the one who brought the news to uh, President Obama that uh, 
the CIA thought they might have some inkling as to where Osama bin Laden was hiding. Uh, Just briefly, how did that evolve? And talk about the decision that President Obama made uh, to uh, move uh, forward on that. What was a a risky mission? Yeah, so this begins in the in the summer of uh, 2010, when the Central Intelligence Agency indicated to the president that they had the best lead that they thought they had had since he disappeared in the mountains of Tora Bora in the early 2000s as to where Osama bin Laden might be. Um, and we worked on the intelligence community, which had been working on this through two presidencies, uh, worked uh, to develop the intelligence, um, to uh, pinpoint this in a, as, as a stark a way or as careful a way as, it, uh, as they could during the, uh, during the rest of the year, 2000, 2010. Uh, and by the beginning of 2010, it indicated to the president that this was the, again, this was the best evidence we, we had been able to develop uh, since he had disappeared. And the president asked us to develop op- um, options for addressing, for addressing the issue. Uh, which we did during the first part of 2011, and then in May of 2011, we so all we of that the time, there were a few people read into this, but yeah. probably just a very few, very right? few people, just a few people in the White House, and it was on a uh, it was on a um, a strict need to know basis. It was a uh, a lesson in how to keep a secret in Washington, which is a simple rule: if you want to keep a secret in Washington, don't tell. <laughs> Apparently, anybody. a lesson lost. Yeah, yeah. If you want to keep a secret in Washington, don't tell anybody. All right, is the. Uh, and it was really, um, in all seriousness, uh, something that was held very close. It did not leak. Uh, that's a tribute to the people involved. It's a tribute to how serious they, uh, serious they took their obligations to the country and the seriousness of the operation that we were about to undertake because it really was a strategic blow against, uh, against al-Qaeda. So the president oversaw this process uh, for eight months, uh, again, from August or so, 2010, to May of 2011. Now, the decision itself... Uh, to undertake the raid from Afghanistan into Pakistan to uh, uh, strike the uh, compound at Abbottabad, Pakistan, uh, was uh, based on circumstantial evidence. This was not a direct evidence case. Uh, this was a, uh, an analytical case put together by the intelligence community. You never had eyes on bin Laden. No, we didn't. Uh, not that we knew, right? You mm-hmm. know. So, but but so there was not. No, there was not. There was not direct evidence. We couldn't go in and say to the president, you know, we were absolutely sure. Here's a picture. Here's another piece of evidence where we can tell you with 100 percent certainty that Osama bin Laden is at this. So at this he compound. authorized this raid. Uh, that was he knew was going to be, uh, create some uh, turmoil with the Pakistani government. What, uh, were you in favor of, of the raid? Yeah, very much so. Um, but it was a divided room, David. So the president, he has in his national security team uh, some of the most prominent Americans in national security that we have, right? Bob Gates, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Mike Mullen, Leon Panetta. You know, mm-hmm. uh, It was an extraordinary array of talent and experience in the room. And on the Thursday night before the decision, this has been reported, uh, the president asked uh, people where they stood, and the room was divided. Uh, mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, of course, we ask our presidents to make those decisions. Those what would have happened if uh, if Bin Laden hadn't been there? Well, that was a, that was part of the the, the uh, basis for the decision the president ultimately made. He had um, confidence that our special forces. Uh, if if Bin Laden were there, they would deal with it. And if he wasn't there, they would get out. Uh, they would get out safely. This is, but this is exactly, I think, what tipped the balance. As you, as you know, what tipped the balance here in an, in, a, in a in a circumstantial case was the president's experience with, and his confidence in 
the U.S. Special Forces. The U.S. Special Forces are a unique American asset. There isn't anything like it in the world. There never has been anything like it in the world, as far as I know. Uh, and he had every confidence that these, that these teams could go in. Uh, and if, if bin Laden was there, they would deal with it. And if... Um, and either capture or eliminate him. Uh, and uh, if he if he wasn't there, that they would have the ability to go in uh, and get out uh, and get out. Um, now he actually made contributions to that decision that were very significant in terms of working through the mechanisms by which the special forces would get would get in and out. But he had this was this was the this was the thing that tipped the decision. Right, I think was his absolute confidence in the in the confidence and judgment of the special forces of the United States. One of the things that he has said he looks back at with re- regret was the decision uh, to intervene in Libya. Um, talk about that and what the implications of that were. You know, he had a pretty well defined. Uh, philosophy based on what the lessons of the recent history that uh, you have to think beyond the first step and then about what happens next. Uh, you know, we, we know what happened uh, at the moment uh, that Gaddafi was 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 killed, uh, but after Libya became kind of an ungovernable space and a, a, a haven for. Uh, for ISIS and for terrorism. Um, was that the right decision? Well, um, we step back for a minute, right, on what on what was going on in the world at that point. The the Arab Spring, which came to the, you know, the kind of the forefront uh, in the winter of uh, 2011, uh, as, uh, it turned out to be um, negative in most every respect, right, from the perspective of security and uh uh, in the Middle East and uh, and our own security interests uh, in the in the in the Middle East, you know it was it it has its roots in in my judgment, uh, decades of failure of governance uh, in the uh, in the Middle East vacuums created as a result of that. Uh, I mean, we, at the time there was great celebration yeah. because Americans identify with the aspirations of. Uh, of people who are right. fighting against those kinds yeah, of conditions, yeah. but we have. But the result, of course, in these back this vacuum, and it was a communications revolution that I think and, mm-hmm. that uh, that um, were was important to this. But we we basically saw a number of failed states emerge um, um, after uh, in the wake of the in the wake of the uh, uh, so-called Arab Spring in Libya. I think what the president has said is not that it was a mistake to uh, act against Gaddafi and his threats against uh, the Libyan people, but rather uh, that, the, uh, that the international community, and I think principally the Europeans, uh, were not adequately prepared to deal with the aftermath mm-hmm. uh, in the kind of scale and force of intervention that was necessary to keep uh, uh, to keep the country on track. I think yeah. that's what he. I think that's. I what didn't he said. say. I, I, I said he looked back at it with regret. I yeah. didn't say he looked back at it as a yeah. uh, as a mistake. Yeah. I'm not going to ask you about Syria because you were gone by the yeah. time that uh, decision was made. And we, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about where we are today. You've seen this president uh, make a series of fairly significant decisions, some of which to reverse. Uh, uh, policies that you uh, helped begin. The the uh, you yeah. were gone by the time the Iran agreement was reached, but that was part of a long, long process. Uh, process. Um, obviously, uh, you know, President Obama in his second term, climate Paris Climate Agreement. He pushed the TPP. That was something that you were involved in, mm-hmm. and so on. And then we see North Korea, and as we sit here today, that 
that is in very much up in the air because the summit that the president promised with great fanfare is now canceled. Just give me your uh, your view of where we are in the world yeah. and what what your uh, what your concerns are and whether you see any strengths in what the president's yeah. doing. My concern is this: is that uh, for the last seventy years uh, we have had an international order created and led by the United States, which has led to, and it hasn't been perfect, but in the main, it has led to extraordinary prosperity and security for the United States. Uh, and at the core of that uh, are a set of principles and institutions uh, that uh, we led on. Uh, uh, values that we led on in terms of democracy and free markets, um, and institutions like international agreements, international institutions like the United Nations, and things like uh, the, the um, um, structures around something like the Paris, uh, the Paris Accord. But most importantly, the United States in the lead. Um, um, the alliance structure that the United States put together around the world to support our efforts to, uh, uh, around the world. And each one of these pillars, alliances, trade, liberal economics, democracy, international institutions and international agreements are all uh, uh, elements of this international order that President Trump has challenged. Uh, and in almost each of those cases, pulled back from a much different relationship with allies, a much more transactional uh, relationship with, uh, with allies. It's called deep concern among our allies around the world and, and uh, uncertainty about U.S. about U.S. leadership on trade has pulled back pretty dramatically and inserted a tremendous amount of uncertainty in our economic approach. International agreements like the Paris Accord, right? Basically, the president has said that he's not really that interested in multilateral agreements, wants to have bilateral bilateral agreements, international institutions uh, generally. And I think the question in the world, David, is um, if the United States isn't leading on these uh, on these values, these institutions, these approaches, uh, what's going to replace it? Uh, and that's the real challenge. And it comes at a really inopportune time. It comes when we have a resurgence of geopolitical competition among the great powers. It comes when uh, we have really an ideological kind of resurgence of an ideological debate in the world about what system uh, is best and can deliver for people. And for the United States to be pulling back at this point um, in the ways that President Trump has is deeply worrying. And it's, been, and it's caused a tremendous amount of instability and volatility uh, around the world. So the question presented is, uh, if you've had 75 years of a U.S.-led order uh, and you pull back all the pillars uh, of that order, uh, you have to. The question is, what's going to replace it? And we don't really have an answer he, to that. He, at this he point. would say that these that that the U.S. has given more than it's gotten. Uh, that's the core of his argument that we've been yeah. taken advantage of yeah. uh, by the world, and that that the world's been living on our dime. Yeah, that's extraordinarily short-sighted and inaccurate historically, of course, uh, because no country in the world, right, has had the level of peace and prosperity that the United States has had uh, in the. Uh, at the core of this international order that the United States, uh, the United States put together, it's just not correct. Uh, and indeed, um, we tr we benefit tremendously from the levels of stability and prosperity uh, around uh, around the world. And what's happened is we pull back. The world doesn't stay static, mm -hmm. you know. So we pull back from the trade from the trade the uh, TPP. 
the Trans-Pacific Trans Partnership, Partnership, right? And the other 11 countries go forward, right? We pull back from our uh, allies in, uh, uh, in Europe, and they start to talk about it and look at moving forward without us. Indeed, you have the Chancellor of Germany saying things like, we can no longer count on the United States to provide for our defense or to lead us as, a, uh, uh, as an alliance. These are extraordinary things that are going on uh, in the world. And again, the question is, what replaces it? And what happens in a period of disorder uh, to our interest and our security going forward, uh, coming out of what was it, what was it, what we led the, what we led the order. So I think that his analysis is uh, is something I wish he would revisit because it's not it's not it's not correct. Now a couple of the specific things, you know, I think the uh, pulling out of the Iran agreement is the worst mistake the United States has made in the Middle East since the Iraq War, um, and uh, and it's been at a high cost, including with allies uh, in Europe, and there's nothing that was laid out, for example, in Secretary Pompeo's speech the other day about our goals, the additional things we want to do with Iran. There's nothing that we couldn't have pursued more effectively, multilaterally, while keeping the arrangement in place that, that really has capped, rolled back, and for an extended period of time, pushed back the Iranian nuclear program. We had that as a base, and we could have worked on follow-on agreements with, uh, with allies around the world. The key to the Iran agreement, of course, was that it was multilateral. Uh, the pressure, I led the pressure campaign, as you know, for almost five yes. years uh, against uh, Iran. The key wasn't U.S. bilateral pressure on Iran. Right. We didn't do any, we haven't done any real economic business with Iran since 1979. The key was our ability to talk to the world about the value, the goal, which was not to have a nuclear Iran pull that together and get an agreement on the pressure campaign. You needed to have multilateral pressure in order to have an effective pressure campaign in, uh, in Iran. And so we will, it'd be very difficult to reconstruct that, reconstruct that now. Um, I think that you know, the TPP, we talked about at Paris. There, isn't there true, isn't the true view there that uh, if we put enough pressure on, if, if we continue down the road of sanctions, it, it you know, leaving aside the fact that the sanctions need to be global to be effective, yeah. Uh, that somehow we can force regime change there? Isn't that sort of the objective, the true objective? Well, you know, a couple of things. First of all, the sanctions will never be as effective as they were, right? You know, uh, we had um, the world engaged in a uh, pressure campaign on Iran, including the Chinese and the Russians. All right? mm -hmm. It'll be exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, for us to put together that kind of, that kind of, uh, that kind of campaign again. Um, and um, and at some point, if you can't kind of put together that kind of campaign that brought them to the table, uh, if you could be brought to the brink of the, what we faced right initially, which was a choice between a choice between Iran going nuclear and us having to take military because action, because they'll go back to because, their and us taking military action, and you'll be you'll be confronted with that with that choice, which makes military action more uh, more likely. There are. Uh, I think a number of people in the in the uh, in the Trump administration who do see regime change as the uh, as well, John Bolton for yeah, one who has, has your it, job, as, your old uh, job, yeah, as, as a as a as a, uh, a solution, right? Um, and of course, you have to think about what the is it, what the cost of that would be, uh, our ability to execute on that. And it would seem to me that uh, our experience uh, in the Middle East over the last. Uh, 15 plus years uh, should have us focus on the real problem, right? The real problem here was a security problem. The real problem was, at least in the first instance, was to cap the nuclear program, which we did and provided a, an important element of stability. And then we could move to these other issues, which are real issues. By the way, Pre uh, Secretary Pompeo laid out a dozen things 
that he would like to see Iran do that they're not doing today that cause us uh, issues, right? I agree with almost, with, I think with every one of them, but we, we, we've actually, we've now foregone the most effective way to address those, I fear. Uh, so I think it's, a, I think it's a, at, at a very high cost, including, as I said earlier, to our European allies and our relationships as well. So I think we've taken the wrong course there, and I think it's, we'll, we'll, we'll look back at it, and I think we'll see that as the worst mistake uh, since the Iraq War in the Middle East, and I think we'll see pulling out of the TPP as one of the worst mistakes we've made in Asia since Vietnam. What about this uh, strange uh, back and forth with North Korea where the president first lurched in the direction of, of, of war, calling him the little rocket man? Promising fire and fury, then uh, announced that he would would hold a uh, uh, summit with him. Now backing out, uh, not clear who was actually backing out, but the president sent a letter uh, backing out at, uh, this uh, in in the in in recent days. Um, where's that headed? You you grappled with North Korea. It's a very tough yeah. situation. The policy that the United States was pursuing, the maximum pressure policy to bring the North Koreans to the table uh, to address the nuclear program is the right policy. Um, and I think we should have continued along, uh, along those lines. Now we evidently had an opportunity uh, for a, uh, a face-to-face negotiation and uh, negotiations uh, about the nuclear program, and we were right to try to move in that direction. But this uh, execution of this has been really I think, uh, start, you know, kind of um, off track from the beginning, David. Uh, it was entered into impulsively after a briefing from South Korean uh, officials. Uh, we then lost message discipline on it where we had the National Security Advisor, uh, you know, one of my, my successor, John Bolton, talking about the Libyan model, which is not applicable here and it was guaranteed to Which really goes to, to the, the core of what Koreans. the North Koreans fear, which is regime change. Yeah, you know, so it's a... Uh, you know, I think the. Do you think he was trying to scuttle the thing? We well, know that he has said that uh, he'd prefer a military option. Yeah, I, mean, I think you know what you know. Uh, you know uh, Ambassador Bolton's had clear views on, on on North Korea for a long time, but I can't I can't look into his mind. I don't I don't like can't I don't like to ascribe motivations to people, um, but um, I can just tell you the fact. Right, the fact is is that citing the Libyan model was not geared to make this a successful negotiation. Right, yeah. it was it was it was it was geared to kind of. Uh, to to uh, it was a mistake to take it to take it off uh, to take um, it off track. unless unless it was you know, intended to yeah. be yeah the right way forward here I don't think was to was to send this letter uh, uh, scuttling the the negotiation the June 12 meeting I think the right way forward would have would have been to say the following um, and we didn't do this at the front end. We don't have the same understandings, evidently, with respect to what our goals are here. We don't have a, uh, a common understandings with respect to what denuclearization means. It means something to us in terms of you giving up in a verifiable and irreversible way your nuclear program. To you, it means the phase drawdown and all kinds of other things on the North, on North Korea side. We clearly need more work before we such get together. Such place. a meeting takes place. We Which have, is how diplomacy generally Exactly. Works. We have a channel. That has been working thus far with with Secretary Pompeo. I think the right decision, David, would have been to hold in place uh, the gains that we've had to date, uh, and to ask uh, for the meeting to be postponed uh, for Secretary Pompeo and interlocutors, including the uh, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong Un, to have further conversations so that we can we can raise the prospects of success uh, for this meeting. Where does it go now? 
Well, I don't. I, I, I don't know where it goes now. You would want to. You know, you'd want to get it back to a negotiated, uh, negotiated uh, up track. But we'll now have to start to try to put together the uh, uh, the sanctions again. I think there's been damage done here. There's been some damage done. I think to the uh, to the alliance. Uh, uh, particularly with the, with South Korea, who was blindsided by this, I think more importantly, it's been damaged onto the maximum pressure campaign because we mm-hmm. took the pressure off, yeah. uh, and uh, we took the pressure off without knowing with enough confidence that we could have a successful negotiation. So there's been damage done here, I think, through the uh, through the process that we've that we've undertake we've undertaken here. F- uh, final thing I wanted to talk to you about the president, one of the real targets uh, for him during the campaign was China, that China was taking advantage. He was going to get tough uh, with China. You've spent a great deal of time there, uh, both as a diplomat and in your business uh, uh, career. Uh, Tell me where you think we are, because it feels like uh, far from being disadvantaged by the president's policies, China has uh, has been uh, blessed with a gift. Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, uh, China is uh, a very, in a very confident mode right now. Uh, President Xi Jinping uh, has been selected now to be the leader of China without limit, uh, with the change in their mm-hmm. in their constitution, and he's a very powerful leader of China. Um, People say in a cliche uh, that he's the most powerful leader of China since Mao. Uh, and in truth, in terms of the presence on the world stage, more powerful because mm-hmm. the China that Mao led is not the China that Xi Jinping right. leads today. It's an entirely different, entirely different country, which much with much more impact on the, the world's ec- economy and geopolitics. The first point. Uh, second is that. Uh, uh, there's a strategic set of, of, of conversation that need to be had here, I think, and, and, and insights to be to be gained with respect to this uh, competitive, new competitive phase that we're in vis-a-vis China. Uh, you know, it's not the same as Russia. I think on Russia, we're actually in an actively hostile mode with the Russians, but it is a more competitive phase with China uh, as it becomes a bigger player uh, on the uh, on the world scene. Third, is that as a result, whether whether Hillary Clinton got elected president or Donald Trump got elected president, we were going to have to deal with, uh, address a number of these structural economic issues uh, between the United States and China, uh, including their subsidies and the way they are pursuing mm-hmm. their technological right. uh, agenda. Things that we were going to have to Stealing face Stealing intellectual property. These and were so going on. to have to be addressed by whoever was the president. Right. What I fear is this. Uh, is that the president's focus on the bilateral trade deficit, which is the, fu- the function of a lot of other things, including your investment level uh, and savings level in your country. I fear that we're going to make smaller deals on that, right, and not deal with really some of the fundamental issues uh, that, are, that are facing the United States and China over the long haul. And we actually had an approach, uh, which I think would have been better for the Trump administration to pursue which is a multilateral approach to deal with the these TPP. structural issues. The TPP was exactly geared, right, to set the rules of the game on trade in the, in, uh, uh, in the world. Uh, and at some point along the way here of history, China was going to have to move to those rules of the game if they wanted to participate uh, in, global, in global trade. We had under negotiation a bilateral uh, investment treaty. Uh, which was to uh, go to the very concept of reciprocity. That is, our companies need to be treated 
in your country the way we treat your, co your companies in our country. And that's been pushed to the side as well. And third, of course, we decided to do this bilaterally as opposed to kind of multilaterally with the Europeans and others, uh, where we could have had a much more constructive conversation and I think more effectiveness in terms of dealing with China. So my fear is that this bilateral focus on deals and focus on numbers and the bilateral trade deficit, I hope, my fear is though, it will distract us from uh, and uh, not allow us to deal, David, with what are really important structural issues going forward here uh, in terms of the U.S.-China uh, relationship. And presumably this sort of withdrawal of leadership that you spoke about earlier leaves an enormous opportunity for the Chinese who are making investments all over the world, their Belt and Road uh, program, and who are playing a very aggressive game. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, and it's at multiple levels. It's economic, it's geopolitical. Uh, uh, the Chinese clearly have uh, you know, tried to push to have a sphere of influence in, uh, in the region, so it's very important for us to reinforce our alliances. It's also really important for us uh, to um, uh, continue to be uh, the leader of the free world, as, he, as, as we, we, we said you know, in the past, right? Uh, a values leader, because there's an alternative model on offer. Uh, you know, that's interesting. If you spend time in China today, uh, uh, and it isn't, you know, the, the theory that many people had for many years was that as China became richer, uh, it would move towards a liberal Western democratic approach um, and would adopt the, the principles and approaches of the Western liberal democracies. That is not what's going on in China today. China has made a set of different decisions, and they're quite clear about it. They expressly reject a number of the approaches and the principles and pillars of our approach in kind of Western liberal democracies, and they have much more a top-down, one-party-led system, uh, and and that's the offer that they're making, right? Mm -hmm. Their 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 approaches. They're We're making not, the case that authoritarianism is a more effective way to uh, achieve your national. Objectives your in the modern world. Yeah, right. And that's the that's the contest we're in, right? So that ideological contest, uh, where uh, the United States has historically been the leader to great effect, is one that we can't step back from. And that's what I fear we're stepping back from. And this goes to a thing I know we have to finish up, is on the issue of uh, is dem of democracy, mm -hmm. uh, where if you look at the polling data today, David. Uh, um, you have uh, increasing numbers, particularly of younger people, uh, who don't see democracy as essential to the way to run a government, right? That's very dangerous, I think, uh, for us going, uh, going forward. You know, there's a crisis of governance in the Western democracies. And, you know, uh, Frank Fukuyama wrote a famous book uh, in 1989 called The End of History, yes. where his proposition was that we had found the best way to run governments. Uh, and it is kind of, you know, the liberal, economic, democratic order. Uh, and that was going to win out and all the rest were going to get swept to the side. He turned out to be wrong. You know, there were two other great books written around that same time period, one by Sam Huntington called The Clash of Civilizations, one written by the famous John Mersheimer at the University right of Chicago on the tragedy of great, uh, great powers, which saw a much more complicated, competitive uh, world. That feels like the world we're in, if, and, and, and we need to lead on, this, on this demo, these democratic propositions. I think you need a leader to say, I am going to lead the free world. I think we need better civic education in the United States. We need critical education, critical thinking uh, uh, education in uh, in the United States. We need to, we need to defend ourselves against these uh, uh, attacks. So there's a lot to be done here um, uh, in order to kind of really have the United States thrive, and I think it can in this new competitive phase. 
We will see yeah. where we are. I have a feeling we're going to be having more of these conversations in the years to come. They, they, they may not go where we want it to go as a country, but they're going to be interesting for sure. Tom Dolan, great to be with you as always. And uh, thank you for being at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.